0: Grab your Bible this morning, open it to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9. And right off the bat, I'm going to let you know that the verses we're going to look at today are a little bit challenging. We're going to look at the last section of verses about relationships that the Apostle Paul gives us. You'll remember he started way back in chapter 4 when he started talking to us about how to live together in the church and how to be mature about that. We talked about marriages and how to handle that relationship well. Last week we talked about children and parents and how to handle that relationship well. Well, here we come up on a section of verses, verses 5 through 9, that talk about a very prevalent relationship in the first century, and that is relationships between slaves and masters. Now, it's not a popular subject. We're not going to win any awards or have any great pep rallies over this one. But it's in the Bible, and what's interesting is it's in the Bible several times. Not only is it in Ephesians, it's in Colossians and 1 Corinthians and 1 Peter and Titus, and there's an entire book dedicated to it, the book of Philemon. If you've never read the book of Philemon, it's it's about Paul's friend named Onesimus, who he met when he was in Rome. And while Paul was in Rome preaching the gospel, this young man named Onesimus got saved. And Onesimus began to tell Paul, "Um, I'm actually a runaway slave, and I probably need to go back to my owner and apologize for how rude I was, for how disrespectful I was, and all of the things that I did to usurp his leadership. Well, that sounds like a good idea. What's, What's your friend's name? Philemon. No way. The Philemon that lives in Ephesus? Yeah, I know him. He's my friend. Small world. Well, I know Philemon's got a little temper, so maybe I should write you a letter before you go back and just talk to Philemon about how he should welcome you back as a brother in Christ, not just as a slave and a master. This morning, we're going to look at this section of verses, and um, I hope we can apply some of it to our lives. We obviously, as a culture, have lived without slavery for more than 100 years now, Even though it's still done a lot in our culture, we're going to look at some things that God asks us to do in light of who he is and how when we put God first, anything can take place in our lives. So join me in a short word of prayer, and then let's jump into our verses. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you for what it does in our lives. Thank you that anything in this book can speak to us today. And I pray that you would open our hearts to it this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, let me just share one little phrase here that I think is important as we jump in that I think helps us with the context. The last phrase of verse 9 says this, and there is no favoritism with him. This verse declares there's no favoritism with God, and what God is saying is, listen, I'm different than you. As mankind, you always find ways to find favoritism with each other and how to treat each other improperly. I don't do that. I'm not like that. And so God begins to give us direction because he knows that we often treat one another improperly because of the sin in our lives and he begins to give us direction for that. Now let me paint a scenario that would have been prevalent at this time during the first century when the Bible is being written that will give us a little bit of insight into this section of verses and about why they're in the Bible. Imagine with me, Uh, a very wealthy man. And he lives in a modern city in the Roman Empire somewhere. And he spends most of his time in the marketplace doing his business. In the marketplace, he makes connections with people. He communicates with people. And it's the way that he makes money. One day, this man, let's, let's call him Paul. He walks into town and he starts sharing A story with people in the marketplace. And the story that this man Paul is sharing is a story that God, not just any God, not just any small God or any number of God, but the true God, the only God, the God who created everything and created our planet and all the stars that we see and everything we see in it. This God left his throne and came to earth and died for us. Now, as this wealthy man, you hear this story in the marketplace and your ears kind of perk up because this story is unlike any story about any God you've ever heard before. And this Paul guy says he'll be back the next day and so you come back the next day and the next and the next and the next until one day you've heard enough that you say, I need to believe in this God. And so you make a commitment to believe in this God and you're excited about who God is. Some other Christians lay their hands on you and they pray for you and you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you even begin to speak in tongues. This awesome religious experience where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and begins to overflow in you and all you can think about is running home and talking to your family and your slaves about it. And so you run home and you talk to your family and about 50 of your family, they all come to believe in Jesus Christ. And you go and you talk to your slaves and you've got about 50 of them and they all come to believe in Jesus Christ. And so now a hundred people have just come into saving relationship in Jesus Christ. But now we have some challenges, some issues. This, This wealthy man begins to think like God does. He begins to see everyone like God does. He no longer sees his slaves as slaves. He begins to see them as the created man and woman that they are in Christ. And he has a dilemma. He also realizes that he has a master in heaven, and he needs to change the way that he's been relating to these people. And so he starts to be kind and generous and loving and forgiving and compassionate. And he starts to become a good leader. And he starts to take care of them like he's never taken care of them before. He starts to watch out for them. He starts to protect them. Over time, he begins to start to think and have a dilemma in his mind. And the dilemma is, should I just let them all go? What should I do? But they're now loving him. They're now treating him with respect and honor and obeying him like they never have before either because now they're a believer in Christ. And so now this relationship is forming that was never like it was before as they are all learning to treat one another like Jesus wants them to treat one another. But there's still this dilemma. Should I let them go? If I let them go, somebody else that is an evil person might pick them up and know that they're a slave and kill them or treat them improperly. Take them into their own home and treat them as a slave and treat them worse. And so in this context, in this challenging condition that's happening in the world, the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters. And masters, treat your slaves like you know you should because you have a master in heaven before as well. And he's watching every single thing you do. So you better treat everybody like Jesus treats you. And these are the directions that we have in God's word. Now, it's interesting that these are here. We would wonder maybe why, why so much direction for slaves and masters? Why is it all over the New Testament? Well, here's one of the reasons it's all over the New Testament. Historians tell us, and as you do a lot of research like I have about this subject, you'll, you'll understand that there's actually, we actually have a lot of material from Roman Historians. So there's actually a pretty good amount of material that we can look up historically and find out what life was like during the first and second century. Now here's what's interesting. About 50%, and that's a rough number, sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's 60%, but about 50% of the Roman Empire during the first century were slaves. So if you can imagine, half of the population of the place where you live is slaves. And in Rome and Italy, the center of the Roman Empire, historians believe it was as high as 85%. So as the gospel begins to expand and grow, and people are getting saved, and it's touching everyone in the Roman Empire, who's getting saved? Well, free people are getting saved, and slaves are getting saved. And now they're having to figure out how to live together. How do we make this very awkward situation work? And the direction that we have is here in verses 5 through 9. Now, here's a couple other things to think about before we jump into our verses. During the first century, Rome is at its height. It's at its greatest place of power. They've taken over almost all of Europe, all of the Middle East, all of North Africa, and, and and they're beyond. Now, here's what's interesting about slavery during the Roman Empire there's some things that are different about slavery than what we would understand as Americans. For one, slavery was not a racial prejudice in Rome. They would enslave anyone for any reason. See, slavery for them was simply whoever we conquered has now become our slave. But it was different in the sense that they would would use those people in the gifts that they had. So if you were conquered by the Romans and you were an architect you'd become an architect in Rome. If you were an engineer, you'd become an engineer. If you were a linguist, you'd become a linguist. You would just do it for the Roman Empire or for a family in the Roman Empire. Most slaves were the result of war. When one empire conquered another, that empire would become slaves of the other. And since Rome had now conquered nearly the entire world, there was a large population of slaves. As a result... Those people are coming to know Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. Most of Rome's slaves were European. That means they looked like Romans. They talked like Romans. They had same similar beliefs and mythologies. They weren't different. They were the same. But here's something very important for us to understand about slavery in the first century that is, helps us to understand what's going on here, but is also different than what we may understand normally. Most slaves in the Roman world lived in better conditions than free people. They said, how could that possibly be? Well, most of the slaves lived in wealthy homes, in wealthy environments, because it was the wealthy people that could afford, unfortunately, to buy someone. Now, we know that that's wrong, and we know that that should never be done, but that's the reality. Slaves were owned by wealthy people. And if you lived in a wealthy home, it meant you had good food. It meant you were protected. And it meant that you could live a life. You probably had more clothes than you ever had as a free person. And so even though it's not a good situation, it's a better living condition than you were as a free person. There's something else that's interesting about the first and second century in Rome. During the first and second century, there became a belief system in Rome that uh, many of the philosophers began to teach amongst the Romans. And they began to inherit as people. And this was kind of their motto according to, about slavery. Their motto was this. A well-taken-care-of slave is a more productive slave. Now, the point was if i'm a bad slave owner and i beat my slaves and i kill them and i treat them horribly i won't get as much production out of them but if i treat them well i will get more production out of them now as a result that caught on and so during the first and second centuries slavery began to change in the roman world and slaves began to receive more rights and privileges due to those changes for instance A slave could worship with their master's family. A slave could get married. They could earn their own money, and you could actually buy your freedom. A slave could lodge a complaint against his master in a court of law and win. And a slave who was killed without just cause could be charged, the owner could be charged with homicide and could end up himself in jail. And lastly, a slave that was abandoned by his master could go free. Now, let me uh, first declare, we're not trying to dress up a muddy pig here. You understand that? We're still talking about slavery. We're not trying to put some decorations on a pig and say that that it's your girlfriend, right? That's not what's happening here. We're still talking about slavery. But we are talking about it in a different context than what we may think about according to American slavery. But what's really happening in the body of Christ that is interesting is all of these people are getting saved. There's a revival happening. And thousands of people are getting saved in every city, every place that Paul goes. Thousands of people are getting saved and they're having to figure out how to live together. And many times, because half the population was in slavery... You're talking about relationships with how do, how do we live together as Christians now because I, I own you, and you're my master. How do I do that? The other question that I thought of as I understood the challenge of these verses, and this is my first question for us this morning, and that is, does God approve of slavery? Because the verses that God gives are to obey and honor your master, and to masters to treat your slaves well. So we could almost think that there was some sort of idea that maybe God is okay with this situation. I wanna start there. And I wanna show you from God's word that God is actually opposed to slavery. And I'm gonna pull in some other verses um, to show us that. The first one's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse eight. It's gonna be on the screen and you can look at it with me. But let me just read a couple verses from it. It says, we know that the law is good If one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous. But for the lawbreakers and rebels. The ungodly and sinful. The unholy and irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers. For murderers. For the sexual immoral. For those practicing homosexuality. And then this last one. For slave traders. So in this list of sinful. (laughs) What it says. Sinful. Unholy. Unholy. Ungodly people in that list is slave traders. So, what we see clearly is that God does not, God considers it a sin for you and I to have slaves and to be in this slave trade, right? That's breaking God's law for mankind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says this Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. And the last verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, Nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Here's what's interesting. I think it's a very human thing, and maybe even a sinful thing, that we label one another. That we're prejudiced against one another. That we hate one another. And that we aren't fair to one another that we have more favoritism towards one person than another. That's wrong. It's sinful. And remember, God said, I have no favoritism. In my kingdom, I don't care what race you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're slave or you're free. It doesn't even matter whether you're male or female, because you're all one in Christ. See, what God does is he levels a playing field. And he said, no one is more important than another. So if you're a master, don't think you're more important than your slave. You're not. Because I'm your master. And everyone is the same in my kingdom. See, it's the sin inside of us that causes the favoritism. It's the sin inside of us that causes the greed to go to war to conquer someone else. It's the sin inside of us that causes the slavery. And it's clear that God is opposed to this. So why isn't the command to simply let your slaves go? That's my next question. Like if God is opposed to this, why isn't the command to simply let your slaves go? Here's why I think the command is to stay in relationship. And not in the sense of relationship like it was before when you weren't saved. But now that you've become saved, what God says is stay in this relationship but treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't treat each other like master and slave like you did before. Treat each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, as a slave, you don't treat your master like you did before. You obey and you are kind and you're obedient and you're respectful. And I'll get to that in a minute. And if you're a master... Don't treat them like you did before. You treat them like you would a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. Knowing that I'm your master and I see everything that you do and will hold you accountable for everything you do, okay? So now this relationship is being formed. And what God knows is that relationships are the strongest things in the world, right? And so in this relationship where everyone is growing in Christ and learning how to be like Christ, we're better off together than we are apart. We're better off doing relationship together in this home than we are being apart. The other thing is, which was still true, that if a slave ran away, or even if a slave was let go, it was still okay in the Roman kingdom to kill that slave if they got caught. So if a master were to let them go, they might be caught by somebody else that was mean and sinful, and they might end up in that home and be in a far worse situation than they were before. So if, if the command had been to let all your slaves go, you could literally be writing their death sentence. That's not good either. Instead, here's what's interesting. Instead, the direction is to be the best Christian you possibly can. That's the direction. Here's what Paul believes, and here's what all the writers of the New Testament believe, that a Christian who puts all of his faith in Jesus Christ and all of his hope and everything about his life and surrenders everything to Jesus, no matter what their circumstances are, they have power over those circumstances because Christ is now living in them. And in the middle of that tough circumstance, you can move on and you can go on. You can live through it. Now remember, our author is Paul. And Paul knows a little bit about what he was writing about because he was a slave. And his father bought his freedom. His father was a wealthy enough man that he bought Paul's freedom. So Paul knows exactly what he's talking about when he talks about living as a Christian in the home that you were in. Now, with that being said, Paul also knows what it means to struggle and to be in a situation because of some inappropriate conduct. Paul's in jail right now simply for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's writing the letter of Ephesians from jail. So he also knows about what it means to be in a situation that is not kind or right. But I think we can also learn what these first century Christians were learning as well. But in order for us to apply these verses today, I'd like us to think about them in the context of our workplace. I'd like us to put it in that context for us knowing that you're not a slave at your, at your workplace, and knowing that your boss is not a master, right? We're all uh, aware of that. But the context of slave and master really is about work. It's really about getting work done. And so in that context, you and I understand that context as well, because we all go to work and need to get work done. So my question is, do you, would, would you find yourself obeying verses five through nine, at your workplace. So the first thing Paul said was be obedient. In other words, don't give your boss any reason to be upset with you. Be obedient. Don't be the person that is always challenging their leadership. Don't be the person that's always talking bad with other employees behind their back. Don't be that employee that when you've been given instructions, you don't do them, and three days later, your boss is asking you, have you done that yet? And you're like, nah. And he's like, why not? I don't know, just didn't want to. Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. Be obedient. But then he takes it to the next level. Not only be obedient, be respectful. Be the person that now is going beyond obedience and you're being respectful. So your boss sees that you desire to treat him or her with honor. That way they know that behind the scenes you're treating them with honor as well. Here's what I've discovered, you probably have too, that those that are respectful in every situation almost always have influence with those around them. The person that is kind, generous, compassionate, joyful, loving all of the time at your workplace, that's the person that has influence. And with that influence, you can easily be obedient and respectful, and you can also have lots of opportunities to share Jesus with people at your workplace. And then Paul says, serve wholeheartedly. Serve wholeheartedly. This is Interesting, what Paul really says is work hard. (laughs) Work hard at your job. And here's why because you're not working for your boss, you're working for your boss. What? Right, you're not working for your boss, you're working for your boss. I'm confused. Well, who's your boss? Is your boss Jesus or your employer? If your boss is Jesus, then you work for him. Amen? Your boss is the Lord. He is your master. And you know that your first responsibility in life is to live for him. And you get to do it wherever you work. And when you do it that way, you serve wholeheartedly. You do a good job when you're at work. And you even do it when no one is looking. You serve wholeheartedly all the time, 100%. When you clock in, you serve wholeheartedly. You don't serve just when the boss is looking at you. In other words, you're not a brown noser. You're obedient, respectful, and servanthood is a part of your life, and it's authentic and real. In this context, your boss is going to see you different than all the other employees. And he may treat you better as a result, and you may even get opportunities that other people don't get simply because of your obedience and your respect. In this way, Paul says, you and I are doing the will of God from our heart. In this context, this is the context that Paul talks about, that you and I are called to live in today and that people were called to live in in the first century so that Jesus could be exalted The second question, I think, applies to us every single day. The second question is a little tougher, though. The second one is this Who is your master? Who is your master today? Because the reality is something or someone is mastering us. The Bible is very clear that we are either one of two things. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to Jesus. There's only two options. When God looks at the world, that's how he sees mankind. We're either living in sin or we're not living in sin. And God wants to be our master because he wants to free us from the thing that holds us captive more than anything else. And that's our sin. What we discover as Christians is that we have the greatest master ever because our master is willing to die for us. So we have a great master. He's kind. He's loving. He's joyful. Now here's what's interesting. Our theology of salvation that we find in God's word, the theology that we make up in God's word, Actually, has the same root words that would have been used to describe the way that slaves would be set free in the first century. Let me show you. There are several words that we use, like redemption, justification, and reconciliation. The first word is redemption, and it is used throughout the Roman world, and it literally means to let a slave go free. So we use it in the kingdom of God, and the writers of the New Testament used, started using this word to refer to us as Christians. Why? Because what the writers of the New Testament are saying is you and I were literally slaves of our sin, and Jesus set us free. He set us free. We're no longer slaves to our sin. We've been redeemed. The second word is this word justification. It means just as if you've never sinned. It also means the act of being judged and found not guilty. The term was often used of a slave that was set free, and he was no longer guilty of a crime or of being a slave anymore. He was now free. And as Christians, we grabbed a hold of that word because... We said, we want to be set free from sin, and we are free because we're no longer guilty. See, on the cross, Jesus took all of our sin, and he died for it. And so when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, our slate is washed clean. It's wiped out. All of our sin is wiped out, and we no longer are guilty. We're actually not guilty. And the third word is reconciliation. This word reconciliation meant the bringing together of people that had been separated from one another. In particular, slaves that had been separated from their families and now had the privilege, once they bought their freedom, to go home or to find their family and be reconciled. And the New Testament uses this word to describe us being reconciled with God the Father, that Jesus Christ paid for our sin, and we are no longer slaves to our sin, so we now, because we are completely forgiven and totally washed clean, we now get to be reconciled with our heavenly Father. We're no longer slaves. We're free people. A slave also, interestingly, was not reconciled with the culture with the society, because as a slave, you were not included in rights and privileges of a free person. You didn't have the freedom of those things. But once you had been reconciled as a slave, all of those things would get restored to you as a free person. So all of your rights of inheritance, ownership, legal citizenship, and all of the things that go along with that were all reconciled to you. And what scripture says is when you and I believe in Jesus Christ and our sin is wiped out, we are now reconciled to God the Father. And now we have a spiritual inheritance, we have ownership, and we have legal citizenship in heaven because we have been completely reconciled to God our Father. Isn't that good news? That's what Jesus has done. He's redeemed us. He's justified us. He's reconciled us. And we are now free see the believer is lifted from the lowest position to the highest position you're no longer a slave to sin you are a slave to Jesus Christ the greatest kindest most loving master of all time and he sets us free in his kingdom now when our when our master begins to be involved in our life we begin to understand life differently We understand life completely differently. One, we respect and fear God more than men. When you understand that God is your master, you respect and fear him more than you do men. That's why it says that we should serve wholeheartedly as if serving the Lord, not people. Because we work for the Lord first. This is why we go to work and strive to be the best employee we have a great attitude, we exhibit leadership, we get along with others, we obey and respect our boss and follow the rules at work because we're working for the Lord. We recognize that our first job in life is to be in relationship with God the Father. And we just carry that out at work. If you go to work and you have, you you don't work hard, you have a crappy attitude, you don't get along with people, you don't obey or respect your boss, and people know you're a Christian. And then one of their friends says, would you like to be a Christian in the only context they have a Christian is you at work? Do they want to be a Christian? Nope. They don't. Because they're like, if that means being the type of person that doesn't work hard, has a crappy attitude, doesn't get along well with other and is disrespectful, no, I don't think I want that. That's why the word is very clear in this spot, and in many others, that when we go out into public, and especially when we go to work, our responsibility is to God first, because we get to be a representation of Jesus Christ at our workplace. Another thing that begins to change in our life is that we understand that everyone is responsible to the Lord. Everyone is responsible to Jesus, and we know that The Lord will hold everybody, including ourselves, responsible for everything we do. So if I feel like I'm the lowest, then I'm called to still live for Christ in that way because God's going to hold me responsible for my actions and my words. And the same is true if you're a leader. God will hold you responsible for your words and for your actions. That's why verse 8 says this. You know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Back to the question, who is your master? See, what we've discovered this morning is that slavery is conditional upon what or who is your master. Because we are either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. And if we're a slave to sin, it results in hurt and pain, destruction, physical death, spiritual death. See, here's what Scripture teaches and what we can capture from this section of verses as well. Is that slavery to sin is the worst form of slavery. Slavery to each other isn't so good either. But slavery to sin is the worst form of slavery. But what's interesting is when Jesus sets you free from your sin you recognize that you can live in any situation you're in because you're really free. You discover I might even be a slave to somebody else, but I'm completely free because I'm no longer a slave to sin, and that was really what was holding me back. That was really the worst thing in my life, but Jesus has set me free, and I can now live in any situation. See, slavery to sin is the worst form of slavery. And sin doesn't care what your label on earth is, whether you're free or a slave. Freedom only comes from Jesus. Our circumstances don't dictate our freedom. Now that would be great if it were true, but it's not. Our circumstances don't dictate our freedom. For instance, we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And I can't go talk to Jesus in a school. But I just had a friend that came back from Africa, and they were begging him to talk about Jesus in school. Your freedom doesn't mean you are free. Your slavery doesn't mean you're a slave. You could be a slave and be the freest person in the world because you have a relationship with Jesus. And you could live in the freest country in the world and look around you and recognize that you are being enslaved by everything and everyone. See, in America, we're free, and I wouldn't rather live anywhere else. But I can look around me just like you and notice... That there are hundreds of things trying to enslave us. We're tried to be enslaved by what we look like on the outside, so that our physical appearance is more important than anything. And if we buy into it, we'll buy into a lifestyle where we're constantly enslaved by a mirror. We're enslaved by food, we're enslaved by money. We're enslaved by sex. We're enslaved by technology. We're enslaved by wealth. And the list goes on and on. But Jesus came to free us. He came to free us from all of that sin and all of these things because what we discover is that the person who is truly free is the one who is a slave to Christ. How can that be? Because this master has everything good for you. Master Jesus wants you to be completely free. And master Jesus doesn't want anything to ever master you. And he knows that our sinful lifestyle, the sin inside of us, and the sin in our world that is now prevalent around the globe is Satan's desire to entrap us and ensnare us and have a stronghold in our life so that you and I are distracted from living and loving Jesus Christ all the days of our life. So back to the question. Who is your master? Or what is mastering you? Because the reality is, it's either Jesus who gives freedom Or it's something else. Would you bow your head with me this morning?